As we continue our way through the book of Romans, would you now open your Bibles to the seventh chapter? Our scripture reading will be chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. This is probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to read. And the reason why it's difficult to read is because the experience being described is so full of twists and turns. And um, we'll take a brief look as we, after we read the passage at how people have attempted to interpret this particular chapter. I'm not going to give you a seminary classroom lecture because that's about as interesting sometimes as watching paint dry or lettuce turning brown. So it's not fun. But I don't want us to miss what the text has to say depending on your view, and uh, I'm not condemning people that hold a different view than I do. They can be wrong if they want to. This is America. No, I'm teasing only a little, but I'm teasing. Hear now the word of the Lord, and let's get this all straight. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war. Law here means power. Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would be gracious to us today in helping us understand um, this passage that is much disputed. And we just pray pray, especially today, that the one who inspired 
this particular section of scripture, this passage where Paul struggles so, that we would be enabled by him to gather from it what we need in order to love you more and serve each other well. So we pray that you would be at work in us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, in this passage, sounds like a walking contradiction. On the one hand, he seems to speak of such a heart that wants to be tender and responsive and obedient to the Lord, and at the same time, he seems to be struggling to the point of almost despair with the power of sin still resident in him. And he uses the word I a lot. You noticed that. You had to notice it when we were reading it. I notice that a lot of people in uh, our particular tradition and circles don't like the word I that much. They want everything to be corporate. To be, You can hide behind that. You can hide behind the corporate stuff so you don't have to face the bad stuff. That is you. Christianity is personal. Every person makes uh, a decision one way or the other, of course, by the grace of God to become a Christian, but you're not saved. You're saved by the grace of God, but it is your faith that you practice. It is something you do. And so what I'm trying to get across to you is it's valuable sometimes to look at something from the personal or what I call the existential situation of life. I am not talking about existentialism, the philosophy. Because every time I use the word existential, somebody gets a knee-jerk reaction and says, oh, you're talking about Soren Kierkegaard, and you're talking about all these existential philosophers. No, I'm not. I'm talking about the personal dimension, the personal nature of spiritual experience. And so what I think this passage does for us all is gives us a sense of Christian realism. What does the Christian life look like? What does it feel like? I know some of you Presbyterians hate the word feel because we don't feel nothing. What we do is we're we're very cognizant. We're very top-heavy with the brain. And that's why a lot of you Reformed people along with me need to spend the time reading the Psalms because the Psalms challenge that particular objective worldview. But before I get into any more trouble, let me step into this. Life holds for us many contradictions. We hate disorder and chaos, and yet our kitchens and workspaces are often a mess. We join the gym, but we never work out. We boast about family and friends one minute and complain about them the next. We contradict ourselves spiritually as well. We know that God does not condemn his children, yet we condemn ourselves. We rest in the gospel one day and then we decide that a trial or a suffering or a hardship is God's punishment the next. We are eager to grow in grace and holiness, but yet we yield to familiar sins. Or we live in the spirit given joy for months, but then decide life is hopeless after a month of wintry cold and gray. Romans 7 takes up an essential contradiction. Disciples wish and intend to do good, 
but then choose evil against their better will. We do precisely what we do not wish to do and fail to do what we always intend to do as believers. And Paul confesses, I have the desire to do right, but I cannot carry it out. This contradiction is the theme of Romans 7, 14 to 20. Now, one of the things this passage ought to do for you is make you jump up and down and celebrate the active obedience of Christ, or what theologians call the imputed righteousness of the gospel, the alien outside of us righteous. Because if you look within and you look at Paul's struggle in this passage, you would utterly despair, but for what? There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is going to do here in this passage, in my humble but I hope accurate opinion, is underline for us and describe for us the reality of Christian experience, what, you can, what a real Christian looks like. And in my belief, this is not a new believer. This is not a person under conviction of sin. This is a mature believer. This is Paul as a mature Christian describing the nature of his experience. But one thing it does for me is it underlines the necessity of us believing the entirety of the gospel, not just that Christ forgave my sin. And uh, when I read opposing views to the one I'm going to give you today, a lot of them come from the new perspective on Paul, people like James Dunn and N.T. Wright, and the other come from the federal vision category. Both categorically deny the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. And that's the only righteousness we have is his. And if we don't have his, we have no hope. So in my opinion, often a person's perspective on Paul's theology, of course, determines the outcome of how they're going to see this passage. So with that said, by way of introduction, let's move a little further into how we are to see it together as God's people. Readings Romans 7, we wonder what happened to Paul's confidence. One approach is to see Romans 6 and Romans 7 dialectically. Romans 6 describes the splendid status of the believer in his union with Christ. While we often enjoy our status experientially, believers also taste defeat. While we often en enjoy that, while we often um, experience defeat, we hate what we do, we lament it, we grieve over it, we confess with Paul, I do the very things I hate and the good I want, I don't seem to be able to do. We resonate with Paul's sorrow, for we too can act like captives to sin and folly. The account of the context of Romans 7 or, uh, takes a position in the long debate about the interpretation of Romans 7, 14 to 25. The interested reader may uh, consult such detailed studies and any good commentary on Romans will give you those. I read one three days ago 10 perspectives on who Paul might be talking about in this passage. I would prefer just to see two. But uh, you see what you want to see sometimes. But there are 10 
views on who Paul is talking about. Who is the I in Romans 7? Who is it? Is this normal or is this an abnormal experience? First, however, I'm going to choose the most popular alternative view to the one I hold, that Romans 7, 7 to 25 describes the pre-Christian experience. It is Paul as a believer in Christ looking back upon his experience of living under the law in Judaism and describing what he felt, the despair he felt, the struggle he felt as a an unbeliever. And so that view tends to say this about Romans 7. First, that the contrast between the experience described in Romans 6 and 7 and 8 is too great for the subject to be the same person. The free man of Romans 6 cannot also be the slave of Romans 7. The I of Romans 7 is a slave of sin who feels trapped by sin and therefore cannot possibly be a Christian. Meanwhile, the you of Romans 8 has been set free from the condemnation of sin and death. Led by the Spirit, the believer calls God Father and awaits the new creation. Second, while Romans 8 mentions the work of the Holy Spirit, 19 times, Romans 7 does not even mention the Holy Spirit at all. That's something to think about. Describing an unregenerate person. Third, while the love of the law and a desire to keep it is mentioned in 719 and 722, may best align with Christian experience, unbelievers can also, in this view, love the law and aspire to it, uh, obey it in a certain respect. This leads some expositors to think that the narrator or the I of Romans 7 could be a specific sort of unbeliever, either a Jew who had attempted to live under God's law or a Gentile proselyte who has begun to awaken spiritually and is then beginning to submit to the law. Advocates of this view offer a novel perspective uh, on the structure of Romans 7 and 8, arguing that Romans 7, 5 through 6 is the overture in Romans 7, uh, 7 to 8, 39. Romans 7, 5 mentions life in the flesh, and Romans 7, 25 elaborates on the condition where Romans 7, 6 describes a believer's release from the law and new life in the spirit, a theme that Romans 8, 1 to 39 develops. So, to summarize, those who think Romans 7 describes an unbeliever, an unregenerate person, believe that Romans 7 is too dark to describe a Christian. Further, Romans 7 contrasts too sharply with Romans 8. The narrator of Romans 7 is sold under sin, which Romans 6 says the believer is absolutely free from. So what I'm trying to get across to you is two, two schools of thought. One can look at this passage, and from the passage, with good intentions, good men, some I know, John Stott for one, um, a guy named Michael Bird for another, they look at this passage and they say this cannot be Paul as a believer. And some will go so far as to 
say that what Paul is doing here is called a speech in character. It's a rhetorical device used in the first century by both the Greco-Roman world and others to basically Paul is not really talking about himself in the present tense now, though all the verbs are in the present tense in this passage. Rather, Paul is using a literary device to communicate to us what's going on in this chapter, and so he's sort of taken an objective position. I don't agree with that view, but I don't hate people who hold that view. I just disagree with them, and I don't think that's looking at the whole of the evidence. Despite that argument, most theologians believe Romans 7 describes the conflict of experience of a believer First, the, vo uh, the voice of Romans 7 is Paul's, and he sounds like a man describing his present life. He says, I, repeatedly, and he uses the present tense. When he says, I do, I want, I know, uh, it is sensible to take this at face value and a portrait of the struggle with sin. Second, most Christians share the experience Paul labels. Most Christians will admit, I hate what I do. Christians wage war with desire and lose a few rounds so that we may say the evil I do is not what I want to do, but I keep on doing it. Paul sounds similar to 1 Timothy 1.15, which is definitely autobiographical. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul says, line them up from Adam onward, and I'm at the first of the line. I am the chief of sinners. And Romans chapter 7 seems to support that view. Uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am chief. Furthermore, hatred of sin and anguish over is typical of believers, not unbelievers. In fact, the more godly people are, the quicker they are personally to grieve over sin and repent while the godless often have an elevated self-regard. Third, the speaker in Romans 7, 14 to 25, loves the law of God, as believers do. Psalm 119 emphasizes, oh, how I love your law. And Romans 7:22, the speaker says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We'll see in Romans 8 that unbelievers do not delight in God's law. They either rebel against it or incorrectly point that they keep it. Unbelievers are hostile to the law of God. Romans 8, 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to no, uh, God's law, nor can it do so. Let me hurry up and get through with this. Fourth, the very struggle with sin is a good thing. It's a sign of faith. It's a sign of life. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit indwells you. Because I'm going to tell you something about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters your life. He penetrates your being for one primary, ultimate reason, to make you and me holy. And so when he comes into our lives, he begins the process of stirring things up. And he stirs up the sinful nature, which Paul calls the flesh. He stirs us up. And part of his work 
in that process is to show us how much we need Jesus and his blood and his righteousness. And so if you do not have this kind of disturbance going on within your being on a daily basis, I'm worried about you. More than that, the scripture seems to say this is normative Christian living, half of it because I want to say that this is half the story. The other half of the story comes in Romans 8. But what Paul is going to do in this passage is totally convince us that we cannot keep the law, that we will never be able to keep the law in our own strength and in our own power, and therefore he is setting up this church in Rome for the wonderful person and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get in Romans 8. And so this is what is going on. He is showing a true believer, a repentant person, this struggle, this anguish that is normal Christian living. Let me see if there's one more I want to say. Finally, the speaker longs for Jesus and looks to him for redemption. He groans, but his longing has a right object, Christ our Lord. His cry is full of desire, not despair. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus will, Romans 7, 24 to 25. Paul sees that the longing spirit in believers is when he states that we groan inwardly, we eagerly await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so in Romans 8, Paul will say that creation itself groans because creation suffered the curse as well of the fall that all creation groans. He says the Spirit groans in us and prays for us according to the will of God, but he says we ourselves groan. Do you groan? Do you grieve? Do you lament? Is that what your part of your spiritual experience is? Is that your reality? Because that's Christian reality. That's what it's like to be a genuine believer uh, in Jesus Christ. Now, there's so much more we could say, but I want to get right into the text because I think the text is important uh, and incredibly important. And so Paul opens his heart in probably the most autobiographical text there is. Oh, by the way, one other thing. When the uh, new perspective side or the Uh, other side of the group, the first view that I don't agree with, talks about Paul's pre-Christian experience. That's not how Paul describes his pre-Christian experience. If you will look in Philippians 3, he says, according to the law, what? Blameless. That's how Paul estimated his law-keeping in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, where he gave his credentials as a Pharisee before he met Christ and despaired of that righteousness and found in Christ the righteousness of Christ, which became his own. So that said, point number one. (laughs) We're going to do more than one week on this, so if you're a kind of person that likes things to move, you're going to have to slow down a little. Slow your roll a little bit today. First, Paul is saying that this is his Christian experience. It's not the only way to see his Christian experience, but it is a very important way to. Paul is viewing himself within a particular context. 
His continued imperfection when judged by the spiritual standards of the law. His total inability as a believer to live according to the spirit of the law. The will of God, to love God and neighbor from right motives, from the heart. He can no more do that than an unbeliever in this passage. Now you need to let this sink in thoroughly. When we read the Bible and discover the will of God and we say to ourselves, just do it, Nike theology, just do it. New creature in Christ, you can do it. And here's how a lot of people see the Christian life. And I used to see the Christian life this way, so I know some do. That the Bible's full of principles for living. And so that to become a Christian, once you're saved, once your sins have been forgiven, once the Holy Spirit enters your life, then all you need to do is figure out what the Bible says to do. You'll see people talk about blueprints for everything, the family, government, society, culture. And so they got it all figured out, and all you need to do is follow this plan, do the principles, and you'll be a good Christian. No, you won't. You can't do the principles. You need the gospel first. You need the gospel to be empowering you. And so rather than principle-centered Christianity, we talk about gospel-centered Christianity because the gospel's where the power is. And so Paul here is looking at the law's demands and he's looking at his own life and he is describing for us a true believer who is struggling with sin remaining residual indwelling sin in his being and also the nature of the flesh. Not physical flesh, but the flesh as the power expressed in our hearts as well. Before Christ, can't obey. Many people believe after Christ, read the Bible, discover what it says, and just do it. But Christian realism is a new paradigm, including chapter 8, of the normal Christian life. Actually, Paul here is a mature believer. Point number one, the mature Christian versus 17 through 20. Look at that with me. He says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul's not copping out. He's not blaming sin, but he's talking about the real me. The real me, the genuine me, the who I am in Christ me, never wants to sin, does not delight in sin, does not uh, participate in sin with glee. The real me loves the law of God. The real me wants to be 100% be obedient all the time. But I find within myself another power. I find within myself another reality. And that power and that reality is the power of sin and flesh. And that pulls us away. It has power in our experience. And we don't even know the strength of it until we live the Christian life or attempt to for years. I, I never cease to be amazed at how Christians don't see the depths of our sin. Maybe you've got to be 70 years old to see it or older. But once you live for a long time, you begin to see you know, I thought I was past all that temptation. I thought I was past all these lusts of the flesh. I thought I had grown beyond all this stuff. And you start walking around thinking like that, and they'll sneak up on you and knock you down. Never trust your own heart. This is not Disney. It's Christianity. 
okay? And the reality of the nature of spiritual experience and sanctification is one in which we have this struggle. So he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability or power to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, know, uh, do not want is what I keep on doing. So Paul is describing for us a condition. There are two views of the self, not compartments of the self, but the whole of self from a variety of perspectives. One standpoint is life in the flesh, still subject to sin's power, sold, as it were, as a slave to sin because it's powerful and it's with us. It's a condition before conversion and carries back into the Christian life for participation of being in Adam. Now, Paul uses eschatology in this passage. And what he's saying is, if you remember back in Romans 5, Paul described that, that a, a person who's a Christian was in Adam, but they are now in Christ. But our being in Adam is not totally gone because we live in the overlap of the two ages, the age that now is, the age of being in Adam, so he's looking at it perspectively, and he's looking at the life in the Spirit and the age to come and the new creation. And Christians live, if you had two circles representing those realities, we live in the overlap of those two realities. So even though we are Christians, even though we're believers, even though we're new creations, we still have the capacity to sin as much as anyone else. That doesn't go away. You know, sometimes people will tell me, I can't believe a Christian would ever do something like that. And I want to say, what planet are you living on? Do you have the same <laughs> heart beating in you that I have? You have to learn to remember if you think you stand, you're probably going to fall. There should always be a distrust in your ability to process and handle anything. Let's talk about sexual temptation. Let's say you're facing sexual temptation. You need to follow Joseph. I will say be like Joseph. Because when Potiphar's wife came after him, what did he do? He ran. She grabbed his cloak, so he must have been running unclothed. But the man ran. Why? Because he understood, believe it or not, there are certain places you can't be, certain things you cannot do, because you're weak. And I'm weak. And you never get past weakness, okay? The Bible doesn't tell me I'm strong. I'm only strong when I get, according to Philippians, when God's strength is in me. But you have to be cognizant of the fact that there's certain situations, certain things we cannot handle. We're still subject to sin's power. So um, we're still subject to the agents of sin, flesh and law. And we're renewed in the inner man. We delight in God's law. We give approval and allegiance to it. Only as a renewed being can, we delight in the law of God, even for the right reasons. But at the same time, Paul, the Christian, knows and understands what he does and why he does it. But he does not approve or acknowledge the legitimacy of what he does. When he gives in to the dictates of sin, he rejects it and he loathes it 
and he loves what he does. The Bible tells us there's pleasure in sin for a season, but when you bite all the way down into it, the pain far exceeds the pleasure. And the destructive ability of sin should never be underestimated. And so Paul mentions to us over and over again that when he gives in to the dictates of sin, he rejects it, he loathes what he does. Christians participate in two realities. Christians are subject to two powers. Christians live in the overlap of the two ages. Therefore, just like the kingdom of God has come already, the kingdom of God has come already, but it's not yet. It hasn't fully come. It hasn't fully manifested itself and won't until Jesus returns. Your sanctification is like that. Your sanctification has already begun, but you're not yet glorified. You're not yet sanctified. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It is a long experience. And so expect to struggle, and if you're not struggling, something's wrong. You're giving in. <laughs> or maybe you're not even in, in the race. But it's supposed to be a struggle, and that's what Paul is telling us here. Now, in a while, this is going to be comforting to you. It's not condemning to you. It will be comforting into you because it's normal. And God has made provision for it. He's made wonderful provision for it. But first, as I often tell people, I wish I could get inside your little heart and, sh and just show you, you know, we can all look around us and see people who we think are more flawed than we are. My friend, I love you. We're all a mess. Every single one of us, or Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. And so we have no reason ever to look down our nose at anybody for doing anything. Put in the right context or the wrong context, in the wrong situation, what would you do if you knew you could do it and nobody would ever find out about it? You say, well, I'd pray all day and read the Bible. I ain't buying no property from you. You'll lie about other things, too. Now, you need to know that. Why? I'm not trying to glorify failure. I'm not trying to say that failure is a virtue. What I'm trying to say is failure is a reality. But don't panic when you fail because it's reality. But God has provision for it, and God will deal with it. But that's what we expect currently. I remember when I first got saved, I was 19 years of age. I was in college, and a good friend of mine asked me to study with him. This was during the Vietnam War, and so my friend was afraid he's about to get drafted because he's flunking out of school, and his number for the draft was like number nine. So if he flunked this science course, Vietnam was where he was going. And he knocked on my door, and he says, what kind of grades do you make in biology? I said, well, I do, do all right. I pass. I go to class. I listen, do all right on the test. He said, would you please study with me? And I stopped him. And I said, Ben, I will study with you because I like you and because I think you're a friend, but don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't want to know about Jesus. I don't want to hear about your experience with Jesus because he, he was all over campus. And I just thought he was scared he was going to Vietnam, so he had a foxhole conversion, 
and he was talking to everybody about Jesus. So I told him, don't do it. Oh, I, I won't. I respect that. I won't. So we meet together to study, and about three words in, he tells me his experience of Christ. I don't even think I listened to him, but the Holy Spirit in that moment showed me, Tim Posey, you are a liar because you're telling him and everybody else on this campus that you're a Christian when you know in your gut you're not. And it was like the Holy Spirit just captured me in that moment, and I fell on my knees. I know not everybody has an experience like this. You don't need one like this necessarily. But I fell to my knees, and I remember saying, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, are you a Christian? I said, I guess I'll rededicate my life. He said, well, have you ever dedicated it the first time? I said, no. <laughs> so it was probably a month before I realized what had happened to me. I'd been converted. And so I was walking along feeling great. I can remember saying to my friends, I don't think I'm ever going to sin again. I mean, I am so happy in Jesus. I am so filled with joy. Everything's lovely. Food tastes better. The air smells fresher. Everything is wonderful. I'm hitting on all six, and I'm feeling great until I fell. And I mean, I fell pretty hard. And I remember saying to myself, it must not have taken. The medicine didn't do the job because nobody told me Romans chapter 7. And so I lived thinking I must have lost my salvation. I must, I've lost the joy. It's not fun anymore. Now I just feel guilty. Now I just feel depressed. I feel like the heaviness of sin is on me and driving me. And I remember feeling so awful about that. And I wish, of course, God knew when I would hear it and needed to hear it, but I wished at that time I had. So conflict is a vivid description of the resulting conflict that Paul experiences. He's not schizophrenic here. He knows the will of God. He loves it. He longs to do it. He yearns to obey. But by himself and in himself, he cannot do it and neither can you. He cannot do it and neither can you. His intent and his heart's desire is to obey the law, to hate evil with a holy hatred. If he does sin, it is against his mind, his will, his consent. It is a contradiction to his very, his uh, experience as a believer. J.I. Packer, I had him in seminary for a winter course when he talked about the nature of spiritual experience, and Packer holds the same view of Rome, or let me say, I hold the same view of Romans 7 that J.I. Packer does. But Packer was talking about it in class, and I remember him saying this. He said, when you grow in holiness, most people think you're going to be on an ascending scale, like walking upstairs. He says, the first thing the Holy Spirit does when he saves you is he starts taking you downstairs. You grow down before you grow up. You grow in humility. You grow and see your sin. And you learn to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And that's why Christ becomes so precious to you. Because you can't just see your sin and focus on it. You see it long enough to hate it, to be disgusted by it. You turn away from it and you turn to Jesus. 
Who is your life and who is your righteousness? I can't see what time it is. What time? It can't be that time. It can't be. All right, the point that I want you to walk away with today then as we wrap this up is that in 16 and 17, Paul says, I want but I can't. And it's not the law's fault, it is sin. In verse 20, he says, sin dwells in me, nothing wrong with the law, but it's a struggle, um, and it's a deep struggle. The flesh never changes, it never goes away, it never becomes new. I remember when I went to a uh, missions conference one time, and there was a lady there who was an institution in the Baptist world. Her name was Bertha Smith, and she's long been dead and in heaven. But she used the uh, felt boards. She loved doing it, even talking to adults. And she would show our sinful condition as a black heart. And then she would show salvation. Uh, she'd take a red heart and put it on top of the black heart, felt one, and say, that's the blood of Christ that washes away our sin says, but what do you think that heart looks like under? She pulled the blood off. She said, it's still black, isn't it? Still black. Still depraved. Still broken. So the point I want you to get today is if you're experiencing struggle in your relationship with Jesus Christ, in relationship with your obedience, in your relationship with living out your faith, welcome to reality the best people I know. That's why J. Gresham Machen, I say it again, said on his deathbed, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. Facing death, he could see nothing in himself that he could offer but his sin. But when he looked at Christ, he saw Christ's blood which washed his sin away and Christ's righteousness which gave him the perfection he needed. He had Christ's righteousness. Christ took his unrighteousness and died for it, covered his sin, gave him his obedient, perfect record resume. His validating experience of life becomes mine so that when I die, I am hidden in the holiness of Christ. I am hidden. But in the nasty now and now, not in the sweet goodbye, a good uh, by and by, but in the nasty now and now, you're going to struggle. And that's normal, but it isn't the whole story. You have to come back next week to hear the whole story. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you that the book of Romans doesn't flatter human nature, that it doesn't airbrush us, doesn't put special light on us to make us look good. It's real. It's exposing. It's powerful. And so we do pray today that we would at least today walk away with a sense of knowing that, yes, there's sin in my life. Yes, I hate it. Yes, I don't want to focus on it. I don't want it to be the thing that I am fixated on. Yet in reality, I'm in that strife. I'm in that conflict. I'm, in, I'm a walking civil war. I'm a walking contradiction sometimes. Lord, help us not to despair of that, but to acknowledge that that is the sign of life. That's a sign that the Spirit is in us, working in us, exposing, showing, 
our inability. We'll never believe it on our own. We will never believe we're that weak. We will never believe that we can't do something. Lord, convince us by your spirit and by your gospel. And now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as grateful people who've been redeemed, who have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light, who have been translated into your dear, sweet kingdom. And we pray that your grace would abound to us and so that we, having all sufficiency, will abound to every good work. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.